Welcome to Sports Pages, a new podcast from Joe, which digs into the stories behind some of the greatest sports books ever written. I'm Simon Clancy, and each week I'll be interviewing the authors of those books to find out about the proposal, the process, and what it felt like to have that first copy in their hands. Now, my guest this week is the youngest person to have ever swum the English Channel at 11 years and 330 days. His recollection of that event was the charming coming-of-age memoir, A Boy in the Water, which was the joint winner of the 2018 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Tom Gregory, welcome to Sports Pages. How are you? Simon, I'm very well. Very well. Thanks for having me. It took me quite a long time to think about how to begin this interview. But in the end, I thought probably the best place to start was at the very start of this journey, not in France, but actually on the edge of a pool in Eltham, age seven years old. And you weren't overly happy to be there, were you? No, I wasn't. We'd just moved to uh, to Eltham and I, my big sister and I were persuaded, no, not persuaded, told by my mother that we needed another hobby. <laughs> And I think I said, you know, I already had a football sticker album and a champion conquer, so who needed another hobby? <laughs> but she she fired us down to to Elton Pools, Elton Balls, and uh, and there was a big pool and a small pool. And during the summer, the, the youngsters would be in the in the small pool, and the bigger kids who were sort of the, you know the channel swimmers, or they, I didn't know this at the time, but they they were in cold water, so they weren't allowed to swim in warm water. And uh, so the big kids would coach the small kids. And I remember walking in there, and it, and it felt impossibly big and large and scary. And I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> I bet. Speaking of hobbies, you actually wrote, I could barely get across the width of the pool and had to stand up halfway. Plus, I didn't need a new hobby, not with a new football sticker album out any day now. <laughs> so I put, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I suppose that that's the essence of the book, you know, that for, from a purely sporting perspective, how do you go from, from a seven-year-old not being able to swim a width of the pool to an 11-year-old being able to swim 32 miles across the channel? I was going to say, it's astonishing to think that just over four years, almost to the day after you went to that pool for the first time, you were actually swimming the world's busiest shipping lane, the English Channel. Yeah, because I've always just accepted the facts of everything that happened, but I'm 43 now. So finally, I'm starting to look back. Oh, it's unusual. If I, if I, as a 43-year-old, decided to get myself in shape for swimming the channel, it'd probably take me about four years and I can already swim, you know. So I, I, the whole book is probably a bit of a tribute to the art of the possible, isn't it? Absolutely. So, yeah. When you swam that first length, there was a man stood on the edge of the pool when he got to the other side and you describe him as short, stocky, with a largely bald head, a sharp nose and a stern expression. Built like a cannonball, he looked to be very much in charge. Tell me about John Bullet. John Bullet. So that book is probably a tribute. If nothing else, it is a tribute to, to John Bullet and all the things that, that he accomplished in his lifetime. He'd set up Elton Swimming Club about 17 years before I first walked through its doors, Elton Training and Swimming Club. It wasn't a, a standard, you know, sprinting swimming club. We didn't really have the swimmers to, to compete at that level. So John found himself being drawn towards open water swimming, which back in the 70s, late 60s, 70s and early 80s was pretty niche stuff undertaken by relatively few people, certainly not the mass participation sport that it is now. And over a period of a decade or more, he built the club up and broadly doing things for the first time every time. You know, the first cross-channel relay with kids from the local area, the first solo attempts, and eventually he, he figured it out. <laughs> and, and those kids became very good. And so, again, if we're talking in sporting terms, you know, he was one of those guys who and I think I wrote this at the back, you know, in modern times, he probably would have had the, or been nominated for the um, the Unsung Hero Award on, on BBC Sports Personality, you know, that, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Very much a servant of his community. Didn't expect to be paid for any of the time that he put in. Uh, and it was a labour of love for him. I would add on a human level, you know, beyond the sporting stories, John was an orphan, right? And he didn't have a family of his own. He lived for his landlady, lived in his with his landlady uh, around the corner from the baths and got up very early to open the baths and spent all of his time either looking after the pool or looking after us, his swimmers, you know? So the club in, his, in that sense became his family. And that's also looking back how we all felt about it. We all felt we were part of this massive family. What impact did he have on your life? How, how much of an impact did he have? John changed my life, you know, in ways that I'm, I'm still only beginning to realise 30 years later. I think that when I remember it, I just remember having an, a massive sense of trust, of an excitement, you know, endeavour and above all, like good fun. You know, things are so much easier in life when you enjoy them. And many people, if unless you're kind of swimmer or it might not be immediately obvious that getting into a cold lake and swimming, <laughs> swimming 10 miles across it is fun. But of mm. course it is because when you're young, you know, everything's a, an experience. And, and it wasn't just the swimming, it was the package of things that came with it. 
the minibus rides, the, the 80s mixtapes, the, the rubbish food, you know, living in a tent in the lakes and, and just that whole kind of adventure that we were all on together. We were very, very fond of one another. You know, that's all we wanted to do was be around the club. He was an old school sort of Brian Clough style disciplinarian, yeah. wasn't he? That's how you've described him. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he, by no respects a perfect human being who is. But also he didn't need to be. You know, he didn't need to be. He was good at all the things he needed to be good at. He could be irascible and impatient. He was quite strict, actually. But also a bit of a lad, you know, a real sort of boyish sense of humour and a sort of mischief around him and a devil may care type streak, which was engaging. And of course, people like that, they're very different to your teachers you know, when, yeah. when you're at school and you know, staring at the blackboard, mystified. John wasn't like that. He was um, dozy parents and dozy teachers, is how, how I think he used to talk about the others as they were, you know. So he was, uh, I don't know, he was a bit of a talisman in that respect. With all the authors that I've spoken to so far, the writing and the event sort of pretty much went hand in hand. But as we'll get to in more depth in a minute, there was a sort of 25 or so year gap between the, the two events of, of the performance and the, and the writing. How easy was it for you to turn back the clock and remember these times when you finally put pen to paper, as it were? I'm tr- I've, I've been trying to work that out myself, if I'm honest with you, because it's genuinely as if the whole thing was just downloaded on a tape recorder, which happens to be my my, my human brain. <laughs> but I could, I could, all I had to do was kind of close my eyes, and, and and there it all was, right down to many of the things that people said. Not everything, clearly, you know, you can't remember every, every word as, of your life and things. But I, I think it had something to do with with all the other things that were happening in the moment. So, the first time you have a crush on someone boy, girl, whatever, right? You remember it. The first time you, <laughs> the first time you see the jaw dropping beauty of the Lake District, you remember it. Mm. And particularly when there's a soundtrack in play, because the, you know, the music and the, and the emotions and the, and the excitement of the world will sort of blend into this thing. I think it's just a combination of things about being young, growing up. Um, and our, our minds are like sponges at that age, aren't they? And it was just about having, trying to access it. I think that almost, well, if you can call it the creative process of writing them. But what I found was that all this stuff was there. And once I'd unlocked it with a trip to Windermere or you know, recalling a particular camp at Dover or something or a conversation I remember having with John, well, they all started to link together and the next uh, level of access of memory just came right in. Mm. And I think there's something about writing as well that cues the thought. It's like pulling a thread. As, as soon as you start writing about it, you remember the next bit. Yeah. And actually, the just challenge with the book wasn't so much re- remembering the detail. It was far more about choosing which ones not to include because there was just so much of it. How often then would you be going swimming? And at what point did it turn from that hobby into something much more serious? The strange thing is for me, it it arguably never did turn into anything much more serious than a hobby. And I know people find that a bit difficult to believe, but there's a real sense of, uh, what would you call it, Corinthian, amateurism around this. You know, this was not hours and hours and hours of every day in the pool. Clearly it got serious in the summer of 88 and and I did a lot of it, but I wasn't doing as much swimming as some of the sprinters, you know, in the county at some of the sprint clubs, for example, you know, two hours before school and things like that for a number of years that, that just didn't happen to me I, but I, I suppose it, it got serious in 1987 when John after a couple of trips to Windermere in the preceding years basically trained me to have a crack at the length of Windermere which is about 10 and a half miles uh, mm. it's pretty cold up there as well uh, fresh water as well obviously and and I got through that I did it and it was my first you know genuine kind of long distance swim I was 10 years old and I can remember walking up I remember it uh, Troutbeck campsite <laughs> walking up the gravel path to the ablutions block and John sort of his arm around my shoulder making sure I was still steady that night and everyone else had gone to bed and uh, he said to me, it's quite a big deal, T-Fowl. That was my nickname, T-Fowl. Yeah. He, this is a big deal. And I looked at him straight and I said, does this mean I might be able to swim the channel? Because I knew that if I could do it the year after in 88, then I had a chance of breaking Marcus Hooper's record for, for age as, as the youngest person. And that, that window would only ever happen once in my life. The coincidence of me being a good enough swimmer, almost a world-class swimmer, and the right age, would only, those two conditions would only occur for about two months the following year. That's when we, we kind of got serious and went, well, yeah, okay, well, if that's possible, then we should have a go. And that's all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do. You mentioned Windermere there, and there's a beauty to that part of the world and that vast lake at Windermere that makes it a very special place, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There's many ways to enjoy the Lake District, and I've 
tried to do many of them over the years, you know, a bit of climbing the fells or, you know, bashing the peaks, what have you, but swimming in it is absolutely fantastic because you feel part of the lake. You know, it's a, it's a very fresh and clear, crisp type of cold and the visibility is really good. The changeability of, of the lake is so vast. It's a mile across at its widest point, but those, those winds get funneled down from the fells the north to the north. And so it can get very choppy very quickly and could be, you know, a really hostile place to swim, if, if I can put it that way. And, and so you learn those challenges. You, you, you learn to embrace the difficulty of it. I can talk about Windermere for hours. There used to be a place near the chain ferry where the, I think it's still there, where the guy did the ice cream cone and then he had a hot chocolate dip. <laughs> so I could just remember the, the joy of having a you know, hot chocolate dipped ice cream waiting for the chain ferry to pick us up. It was just like a, another world. Um, mm. And I guess as swimmers, we used to find the secret bits, you know, where, where there weren't huge traffic jams and um, no, nowhere to park and things like that. We, we were trying to find the places where a swimmer could come ashore if they were tired and things. You know, a lot of it was off the map and, and figuring out the slightly less beaten paths. Yeah. You talk of Windermere at, at age 10. Take me back two years to age eight and your first ever immersion to really cold water outside what was swimming in dover harbour like yeah that was dover harbour it was easter weekend and it's it's still pretty cold and we'd get changed in the old um in the old promenade shelters and i remember thinking they remind me of bus stops but with sort of victoriana and glass and, and lovely <laughs> ironwork and things and we just all looked a little bit unlikely this gang of slightly street kids from southeast london getting into their into their speedos in the rain and hobbling down the beach. And, you know, when you walk down a beach, you, your arms are out wide because, oh, ow. Um, <laughs> and these bright orange hats and then sort of diving into the murkiness. I, I remember it so well because the, the beach at Dover, at high tide, it can steep, very, it can slope very, very steeply. The stones build up into sort of quite steep banks. So depending on what time of the day you go, depends on whether it's a sort of gentle, you know, 20 paces before you can swim or you're just in, <laughs> in and under. And it was the mm. latter. And it was brutally cold. I mean, that's that. That sort of pain of immersion is actually like pain, actually, when the cold water first rushes your system. Uh, and John yeah. had just said, you know, I want you in, under and out. That was just to kind of dunk you and then get out. <laughs> and then over the weekend, we'll go back and we'll go back and we'll go back until you've done, I don't know, seven or eight swims. You write in the book, the shock of the cold made my feet hurt. Fearful of being last, I took a big step forwards only to find the stones had vanished beneath me. And so I tipped forwards into this deep water. My body convulsed and my lungs filled up in one huge involuntary gasp. Pain gripped my body and there was a moment of sheer panic. Yeah, that's right. I felt, well, I think I was seven. <laughs> like, wow. wow. What am I doing? You know, it's, um, I mean, it is important to remember that this all came at a time where your passion for swimming and this Dover Harbour came when you were sort of vying for attention alongside why your Walkman didn't have a rewind button, the latest now, that's what I call music, and whether it was cool to wear a bow tie to discos. It, it, it just <laughs> underlines the ridiculousness of your age. Yeah, but I wasn't on my own. I was the youngest in the gang, but I was still part of a gang, right? Talk about my nickname. The, the reason why I was okay on all those things is because not only was John casting his beady eye from the, from the shelter in his bobble hat, you know, up on the beach there, but, you know, it was Mother Duck who takes a, a very important role in the, mm. in the course of events over the years that followed. And there she was, swimming calmly, having disobeyed John's instructions to get in and get out because she was there to look <laughs> after everyone else, right? And so it's very important to remember that that group of kids, it was a very nurturing place, right? We, we were there to look after each other, if that makes sense. And so you never really felt, although it was challenging and sometimes unpleasant, certainly difficult, you didn't feel that, any, that anybody wasn't looking after you. Yeah, that's a very different sense. That was never the case. Yeah. Diet was very important as well, wasn't it? I mean, in the run-up to the Channel Swim, I'll read a list here of things you probably shouldn't eat at any point if you're you know, if you're trying to do some sort of fitness event, unless it was swimming the channel, but you were being fed what, tinned ravioli, mash, marrow fat peas on a swim camp in the lakes, copious amounts of yeah. tea, chocolates, penny sweets, strawberry jam sandwiches on thick white bread, and then these daily breakfasts of whole tin of baked beans, three scrambled eggs, two thick slices of buttered bread, plus a porridge starter with a dessert yeah. spoon of soya flour. I mean, yeah. that's a hell of a diet yeah. for a yeah. 10, 11 year old kid. Crazy, isn't it? The spoon of Soya flour was a, a token to to what would now be called sports nutrition. Why, of course. <laughs> why, why it had to be in there? I have no idea what, what, what mystical properties it, it's supposed to have. Soya yeah. flour. I could go on. I mean, I had to eat liver once a week. I had to have steak once a week. I had shepherd's pie twice a week. So this was John's. But this was really the era before sports nutrition, and certainly before it was you know, widely understood in the way it is now. But those were the things. Stodge, right? <laughs> those were the yeah. things that people thought through through trial and error and experience were the, the right type of thing to keep one going. And 
I've never done the exercise of sort of looking back on it and asking a sports nutritionist, what should I have eaten? <laughs> what would have stopped me having a sort of uh, probably a blood sugar wall, at, you know, hour 10 or something in the sea, as, as was probably the case? And so I guess we'll never know. But uh, that's just what we did. You know, it worked. Yeah. So why change it sort of thing? There's a lovely description in the book, actually, of a breakfast that you have with John. And it speaks to a bigger picture, which I'll get to in the final line of this little quote. It says, the little chef branded plates arrived identically loaded with a full English, just as the photo on the menu had promised. Mavis brought the toast pre-buttered and finally the tea in two stubby silver teapots that dribbled when tipped over the white cup and saucer. I only took sugar in tea during a long cold swim, like John. This was the little chef routine, logo propaganda and cloned conformity on a plate. It was a drill of repetition and regularity designed to generate trust. It resembled the relationship that had emerged between John and me. Mm. Yeah, that's how it felt. And John and I did have our routines and we and we did things together like, you know, drive down the A2 and go and have breakfast at the Little Chef, <laughs> all those things, because we needed that bond of trust and, and we needed to know each other on a personal level, not just, a, you know, he's the head coach of the club, et cetera. We needed to know each other a bit better than that. Uh, and so those are the sorts of things that we did. Yeah, he was a creature of habit as well. So John would typically drive down to the A2 to go and have breakfast at his favourite Little Chef because <laughs> that's what he did. It was a bit like that. So yeah, I, I, I sort of felt that almost captured captured something of the times as well and certainly the relationship I had with John it was all about trust all about trust and repetition mm. that's what swimming coaches do for, for their students isn't it you know I'm interested to know how your parents were at this time because it's a pretty selfless act to allow John Bullitt and others to be so pivotal in your life it must have been I assume difficult for them to to place their son into the hands of this sort of surrogate parent well, I'm glad you've put it like that because normally the question starts from the other set of values, which is, well, you must have had very pushy parents or they must have had ambitions for you and things. And nothing could be further from the truth. It was exactly the other way around. Mum and dad were courageous in, in respect of letting it all happen. But I would add that they weren't neglectful in that either, not by any stretch, because they could see the evidence that was sort of unfolding in front of them. And so they, they could use their judgment look at the evidence and say, of course, yeah, I'm fine with this. There's no reason not to be based on that which I can see. And of course, everything was in the eye line. So there was, I think my father in particular, a young lad having you know, another sort of role model type figure in your life who's similar age to your father. You know, I think that probably was a bit selfless of dad, but that's dad. You know, he's always, he is a very selfless and loving man, you know. Mm. He's usually tolerant, always looks to see things from, from someone else's perspective. And he could see that John was an imperfect and sometimes difficult character, but also quite a brilliant character. And dad's a smart guy, right? So so he, he sort of went along with it. You know, he didn't encourage it. He just, he just said, well, if this is what you want to do, we'll support you. But it was conditional on it being something that I was keen on. And people say, I'm a parent now myself, you know. And people say, well, you can't let a 10-year-old make that decision. You sort of can. Like my five-year-old is very clear with me about the things she doesn't, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want to do. And so insofar as one can, you think, well, yeah, okay, you know, if, if you're keen on something and you want to do it, well, why, why would I stop you, you know? Things started to change, I suppose, in terms of the preparations for the Channel Swim around Christmas 87 and specifically around baths and showers and then the springs regarding bedtime. Can you tell me what happened? I remember mentioning cold water training was a sort of a norm for any of the, the senior swimmers from the summer months. You, you wouldn't swim in the warm. But for me, that year, 88, uh, we sort of just notched it up a bit, really. And so um, so I, cold showers and cold baths became the norm from pretty early in the year. And I didn't touch cold water, uh, warm water for 10 months or something. And all of that was really about just providing the physical conditioning. With channel swimming, just as a slight tangent, you've know, you, you got to deal with three things. You've got to deal with the physical distance of the thing. You're not going to do less than 28 miles because of the currents. And then you've got to deal with the cold and the interplay of those things. And then finally, what's happening in your brain. You know, that's a sort of triangle that you're trying to solve for. This was about us making sure that I was physically prepared for the cold. Yeah, not just in the way you can do seven hours in Windermere or something, but very resilient to the cold. And, and so I had, a, I had a tiny little bedroom in our house and the window was half the width of the wall sort of thing. Uh, and that window, sash window would be open fully from early Easter, if not sooner. And I'd just sleep under a bed sheet. Uh, and I can remember how it felt waking up a little bit chilly, actually. But I, I figured out that if I pulled the sheet over my head and made a sort of, you know, if you're trying to warm your hands and your breath, <laughs> that type of 
uh, sort of action. Your breath's like a, a fraction warmer than the air that, that you're breathing out to. And that was enough to like a sort of little air bubble of warmth that was been enough for me to get back to sleep, you know. But of course, over time, I didn't even notice it. That was the point. I'm no. acclimatized. My mates would be out in, in coats and things and I'll, I'll be in a t-shirt. Yeah, that and the food, of course. The, the, maybe the point of all that food was to, was to put another layer of sort of blubber because huh. it's probably the best insulation you can get. What were those final weeks like in the run-up to the swim? Nervy. There was one episode in particular that jumps out about, so I think it's three or four weeks before I eventually made a, my, when my crossing uh, window appeared, there was a lady who died in her attempt to swim. Her name was Renata Gandhi. She was 24 from memory. Mm. It was actually 10 days before you set off. Was it 10 days? Gosh. Yeah. Um, she was a world-class swimmer, put it that way. She'd, she'd like come second in the Capri to Naples race, which I'd never even heard of, but she died of hypothermia. And there was I won't go into the details. Lots of reasons why that shouldn't have happened, obviously. But it made the news and it was a tragedy. And I think mum and dad at that point were a little bit spooked because everything had been going to plan. (laughs) There was every reason to to think that we should absolutely confident in this attempt. And I later later found out actually that dad did have a a separate conversation with John and the other coach, John Calloway, to say, look, I need you to tell me (laughs) this is is safe, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course they did and reassured him. But it was a nervy time because you're waiting for a perfect set of conditions to arrive that may never arrive. So it's a little bit of a sort of gamble. The right tides and, um, you know, spring tides, neap tides, can favour or, or otherwise a swimmer, depending on the type of swimmer. And of course, you need as little wind as possible so that the sea is as flat as it can be. And those conditions might never arrive. So it's a very difficult thing to know when to go. You're in a sort of queuing system because there's, you know, even in 1988, there was still probably 100 or so people maybe trying to get across and, and very few boats that can do that stuff. And, and the pilots get pre-booked sometimes years in advance now. So yeah, it was nervy times. And then I guess... Even sooner before my my date, which was ended up being the sixth of September, Mother Duck, she was ten years my senior. She had her attempt and didn't make it. You know, she got pulled a few miles off the French coast, and of course that made me just think, oh gosh, who, who am I trying to kid? Mm. <laughs> Someone's just died. Mother Duck can't make it. The statistical chances of one in ten all of a sudden seemed a bit more like a one in a hundred. You know, we worried about death. No, because I trusted John, uh, and I was right to. Yeah, you're right. Doctors, medicals and consent were all very well, but also largely irrelevant. The only thing that mattered was John. John Bullitt would keep me safe. Of that, I had no doubt whatsoever. I trusted John with my life. And people also hearing that passage in, in isolation from the wider book, I, I would I would have sympathy if someone thought, well, bloody hell, why should you? <laughs> but, yeah. but I suppose if you take it in the context of the, of the whole story, then you then it would become clear why, why that was the right thing to feel. Uh, and I believe it was. I, look, it's... It's not lost on me that in, in these times, maybe ask about it in a minute, but when I wrote this story, I, I hadn't quite predicted some of the reaction from, from some quarters in respect of mm. you know, people's views about whether or not that should ever have happened. You know, uh, It is something I'm very happy to talk about because I obviously have a view. You know? Of course it should. And it was me. And I loved it. So. Yeah. Go on, then. Talk <laughs> yeah. about it now. What? Well, I, I sometimes think the book only exists because our, our attitudes to these things have probably changed. And I don't mean to sort of generalise generalize us all because there's obviously a range of, of attitudes that exist across society but in terms of sort of bellwether of what we think is acceptable and not acceptable i do question whether or not that could happen now even if there wasn't a set of rules that, that prevented you from doing so just to be clear you're not allowed to do it anymore so after i did it uh, it was a bit of a furore and eventually the, the age of 16 was established as the, the youngest age you could attend the channel so that record is, is locked in but of course when 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 somebody called me up it was a BBC journalist and, and he said um, look I've come across the fact of the youngest person being to swim the channel being you and you're a British guy and I've managed to track you down LinkedIn and press office all that stuff and he said I think that's just a remarkable story that anybody could swim the channel aged 11 and my thought is it was well maybe but I don't see it that way you know it's nestled happily in my past and I was there so I naturally think of it as slightly unremarkable and he said well I, I've googled you and I can't find anything like not a thing and I said, well, that stands to reason, really. I don't really talk about it. You know, no one's ever asked. Mm. <laughs> it's, just kind of, it's just something I'm quite pleased happened to me when I was a kid, you know. And he said, well, the thing is, I don't think that could happen anymore. Even if there wasn't a rule, I just don't believe that society would kind of go for it. And that, that's, that's interesting, you know. Uh, and I think that was part of the reason why I was then able to write the book or, or somebody felt minded to only buy it, I guess. You know, or certainly give you a book deal sort of thing. Because I... I just wonder if our if our attitudes to that kind of thing have, have evolved a little bit. Uh, and I have to remind people 
no, nothing bad happened here. <laughs> you know, yeah. this was us doing what we wanted to do and loving it. Right. Yeah. And, 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 there are some dark bits in it. I can't, I would not deny it, but that's, that's what endurance sport is. You know, that's why people do it. It's hard for a reason, if that makes sense, you know, and if it was easy, there wouldn't be anything to write about and there wouldn't be a challenge to overcome. And that's the whole point. So yeah, it's interesting how it's um, not divided opinion as such, but I was kind of surprised when some of the press reviews and not many of them, but certainly a couple sort of lean more into the, this should never have happened argument rather than, the discussion on the book or the writing or the relationships yeah. or anything like that. It was much more about sort of should this have been, ever been allowed to happen, which I, which I thought was yeah. quite sad, actually. Yeah, I do agree with you, though. I, don't, I, I think there's been such a seismic shift in the way society is mm. that it would almost be seen as child abuse in a way, I think. I mean, th- that might be stretching the yeah, boundaries. It would. But I, I, it would, but that's the sort of language that people use, isn't it? Well, that's what's so so sort of upsetting about it really because if if you're if you're from my point of view and and you sort of live that experience and you know that gave me things both then and now which are of enormous value to me you know and to all of us who were in that swimming club challenge anyone to find somebody who thinks differently who was involved you know and so uh, yeah it always always takes me back it takes my breath a, a little bit because i sometimes i then sort of feel i'm in on the territory of having to defend something which is never how it felt to me you know i was you know, trying to put out a story of adventure love trust and achievement and it's a, it was a sad sign of times where, when others possibly found something different which i think is a real shame i suppose when i first read the book and then looking back through it last week you got into the water at around 5 a.m in france but you actually came over that night on the night ferry which doesn't seem like idle preparation for a channel swim. These days you'd sort of be in a camp in France for two weeks and and all that kind of thing, not coming over on the night ferry the night of, and also having a massive fry up on that night ferry three or four hours before you got in the water to do 12 hours swimming. It was a fry up as well in the ferry canteen with all the truckers. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was strange. I don't know. I I just, I think that was just the plan that John had, set up and in, in 1988 that was the simplest way of doing anything right he told me to sort of sleep i remember i really remember being picked up when his blue cavalier pulled up outside our our place in elton and you know knocking on the door my bag was packed it was 10 p.m 10 p.m sharp and i've been off school all afternoon and told to go to bed and try and sleep and eat shepherd's pie and couldn't do any of those things and then i sort of left mum and dad in the in the suburban darkness, you know, thinking, oh gosh, what am I doing? And there's a bit of a nervy moment, but mm. look, it worked, you know? Absolutely. The book actually starts in the last minutes before the swim begins. So your favourite swimming shorts, the special goggles with the double knot, the rock hard tin of body grease, light sticks being shoved in the back of your shorts. But take me back, what was that atmosphere like in those final few seconds, getting out of the car and, uh, and about to put your feet into the water? How, how were you feeling? I've never put it this way before, but I think it's probably a little bit like a, an actor might feel just before they go on stage. You know, they've done all the rehearsals, then all the lines. The audience is out there waiting for you to take the stage and do your thing. You know, that, you're nervous and excited at the same time. I think it was that sense because I think I put there was a line, I four years to train for it, one day to do it, one chance, just one chance. So I knew that these conditions could never happen again. And if it wasn't now, then never, right? And I was also kind of confident. You know, I, I knew that John wouldn't let me have a go for this thing unless unless I was capable of it. And and the, th- the swims that I'd done had proved to me that I that I had a chance of getting across, and that it was going to be pretty horrible to do so. But I had a, definitely had a chance. And then the fact was, I was still eleven, so it was really exciting to be stood in the dark on a French beach, and it was pitch black, <laughs> about to swim off into the darkness. It's quite an exciting thing to do if you like that kind of thing, and I did. You know, but then underneath that, when I thought about the challenge that was about to unfold, I kind of knew that no matter what happened, it was going to be emotional because I was either going to swim to the point where I couldn't carry on, which by definition is not a nice place, or I'll get to the end, but there was no chance it was going to be easy. So whichever outcome (laughs) was going to come next, I kind of knew it wasn't going to be very pleasant. Yeah, I I would argue that's that third bit when I said about just trying to solve what's in your head. That's the point, because if, if you if you understand that because you've trained through those scenarios and you know what's coming, that's the thing that gives you the ability to deal with it and to come through them. I, bet. I, I love reading the final instructions from John, and it harks back to that sort of Brian Clough disciplinarian type that we talked about. How are you feeling, he says. Nervous, I reply. You'll be fine, he says. Just get it done. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But of course, remember all those other hours, months, years that we spent together were also about being able to communicate an awful lot with the look from the water, from the boat and back again. 
And so it's true to say John was something of a minimalist in terms of conversation. <laughs> he communicated in other way, in other ways. He wasn't a great raconteur, was he? He wasn't a great raconteur, really, no. But that wasn't to say that there wasn't an awful lot of other type of communications. And that's really what happens as the swim unfolds. You know, he eventually takes his place on the on the rail of the boat and at some stage points to the cliff. And I and I realised what all that means. And but we'd practiced. We knew what we were doing. We were a pretty slick operation by then. John knew exactly how to manage me through a swim, and I knew when to get angry at him and when not to, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Um I try and put where his shoes were a bit as well. Now, he he would have been hugely excited and very nervous and apprehensive, but he didn't let any of that show. He was just in command. So here you were, 11 years, 330 days on the beach of Wissant, no wetsuit. Can you in any way describe what came next? Yeah, so slightly formulaic, but if I look at it in thirds, the first, uh, including the, the swim through the darkness, that was just hugely exciting. There was quite a lot of swell in the channel, not chop, not the little wavelets, the things that slap you in the face, but the swell, like a roller coaster. And I'd never really swum in the dark, so I discovered luminescence for the first time, the thing where if I got far away enough from the boat, my hands, as I plunged them through the water, would light up tiny green and blue bubbles. It was just a thrill to be doing that. And looking down on the boat, if I was on a peak and it was in a trough, yeah, it's just like, wow, yeah. this is cool. <laughs> and it was dark and it was exciting. Everything's exciting in the dark, isn't it? And so there's a sort of sense of euphoria, balance with trepidation, whatever the word might be, possibly anxiety about what was to come, which we just discussed. The middle third was just sort of getting on with it, really, just trying to chew up the miles. Some of that is about boredom and managing boredom. There's no one to talk to. It's hours and hours and hours. Swimming for a long time, it does sort of play tricks with people's mind a bit, you know. I didn't really understand it when I was 11, but there's only so so long you can do it for before, before it does, does things to your brain. Yeah. And it's something about the head moving from side to side, the noise and things like that. Getting through that was hard-ish, but mostly enjoyable, actually. And that was really just about me managing myself and the team on the boat trying to manage me back a little bit where it wasn't going so well. And just putting into practice all the things that we trained for. The last third is the bit that you can't train for because... I'd never done that much before. You know, I had to double the, the distance and time that I've been in the water before. You know, so it's just doubling your personal best on the day type scenario. And so, yeah, you can prepare for it. That's what trains for, but you can't know what it's like until you do it. Mm. Uh, not fully. And so that was a bit dark because I got to sort of levels of, of exhaustion and things that um, I hadn't been to before. And I fell asleep at one point whilst I was swimming along. I had a very clear hallucination, which I can still remember if I, if I just sort of close my eyes and think about it. And I think mentally there's, there's a slight thing of despair going on. And lots, it's one thing, loads of people from the channel who've read that book have written, written to me or tweeted or emailed me and said, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. It's like a sort of a level of despair. You feel very, very sorry for yourself, very upset, a little bit tearful, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think the science behind that is probably that you're having a massive sugar crash or going through a yeah. wall as a marathon runner might, might put it, you know, but it's a very different sense in the water. And so that, that sort of back third was undeniably quite dark, you know, yeah. not physically dark, but emotionally quite dark. You put it very beautifully, though. You say, I felt like a little kid who'd asked for the wrong Christmas present, pushing and demanding that I got my way, only to unwrap the thing and discover that it wasn't what I thought it was and that I had to live with the consequences. This will end, this will end, this will end, I began repeating to myself. Mm, that's exactly how, yeah, exactly how it felt. Yeah. But you know, I go back to the point that that was a moment in time and that is how I felt aged 11, you know, three miles off the English coast. And it was brutal. But that doesn't mean to say that it was wrong or not worthy because, you know, one thing that, that occurred to me, actually having sort of reread my own book a few times, that you know, really what happened over time, they, f they sort of fade the slight sense of trauma because probably how, that is how it felt that fades and is replaced by something else, which is a huge, deep sense of achievement and satisfaction, personal worth. And you should look back and think, God, that was brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? It was hard, but it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I'd done something as, as challenging as that. And I, actually, you know, things I've done later on in my life, I'm, I'm no adventure explorer type, but, you know, there's plenty of things you do as a soldier that, that resemble that. And they're, they're pretty horrid in the moment. I'm talking about the training side of things as opposed to operations, but you know, training can put you in a in a very difficult place, you know, where you don't think you're enjoying yourself, but then the sergeant major reminds you, yes, you are, sir. Yeah, so so that, that's a kind of theme in it, really. What's hard in the moment, you'll look back on it and you, and you feel differently about it. And, and this is one of those examples. How much pain did seeing the White Cliffs of Dover bring you? Because I, I assume that when you see them for the first time, you think, I must be close, but actually they're one of those things that you can see from quite a long way out. So actually it's almost like a mirage that's well put by you I, and that's what happened so at the point where, where they became visible 
it became a problem for me to not look up every few strokes to see if they were just a little bit closer. And of course they weren't, and they never appeared to become any closer. And that goes back to that, what's going on in your mind type thing. And that was, that was one of those cues. That's one of those little cues of, of behavior that when you're on a swim can pull you down, you know, emotionally can pull you down very quickly, almost a negative spiral really. But I guess I do, I do remember the counter being true where for whatever reason, exhaustion or just having my mind taken off it, I hadn't looked for them for, for some time, only to look up and of course there they were and they were much closer. And then that, that moment of, um, of hope to balance yeah. the despair that's <laughs> preceded it, you go, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> maybe I can get there. Take me to those final few minutes then, those final few hundred strokes as you could almost see the beach and, and the finish line. What was that like? Would you? And when was the realisation that even though you hadn't got to the end, that you'd done it, you know, you'd broken the back of it, you knew you were going to make it now? There was a sort of frenzied end to it because having had the, the sleepy bit and the hallucination bit and then there's a bit where Mother Duck jumps in just to kind of be a bit of a pilot for me, human company in the water, and then she's gone. And then all of a sudden, John is beside me in the tender and I could see the wall of Dover Harbour behind him jutting out into the sea and him shouting 400 yards, 400 yards, and just going, go, go. And I just started sprinting. I think what was strange about that, I didn't write this at the time, but there was a kind of calmness, you know, because I'd realised that this was actually, it was actually going to end. I, I, can, I can relax. I'm going, to, I'm going to go. I'm going in, insofar as I was thinking anything. But it was frenzy. So I started sprinting in, and someone told me, sort of measured about 70 strokes a minute or something, which basically like a sprint, really. And just kept on going. I think John was actually trying to get me in under 12 hours. That was what he would have been thinking. Right. I've only got five minutes. He's got to go um, under sub 12 hours. And so that was the kind of the approach to it. But again, it was just a frenzy of physical effort, which is a short term thing because you know it can't continue. And then the bit that, that really jumped out, my hands touched a pebble. My left arm, I have a right breather. My left arm, the one that reaches down the furthest, sort of touched pebbles. And that was the first time I touched anything, you know, for 12 hours. Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, I opened my eyes to look down, and there were the pebbles. And there was like, you know, sort of kaleidoscope thing. They just rushed into my focus, and it was very confusing. My head's been moving, and all of a sudden, there's a fixed point. And so it's hugely dizzying. And then, and then I was kind of anchored to the to the pebbles, to the beach, sort of, you know, kneeling, as it were. And all of a sudden, I was separate from the sea. I've been part of the sea for 12 hours, but now I was anchored. I was part of land and I thought, well, this is England and this is, this is it. And so the sounds and the sights of it are still very vivid for me. But then you have to take these three full steps for it to actually register. The pain sort of doesn't end, does it? How hard was that to take three steps? <laughs> Physically quite it's, difficult, yeah. I bet it was. Well, because you couldn't stand up. I kept falling over. You're so dizzy and, you, you know, land legs, as it were, you, you just haven't got any. And of course, you're exhausted. Um, so fit, just the act of standing up is pretty tricky. And get, getting your legs moving to walk is very difficult. It took me a few attempts. But eventually, I sort of righted myself. There's a photograph that someone got of me sort of striding up the beach. And I look like a robot. I look like I'm trying to do an impression of a robot. <laughs> and I think it's probably because I was, you know, like you know, left, right, left, you know, arm opposite leg sort of thing. And so I kept on walking one, two, three. I knew I'd done the three steps. And I thought, well, I'll keep going just for good, good measure until I eventually just sort of stopped and fell on the, fell down on the beach as it were. But then I sort of righted myself and then sat up and looked back towards the sea to see what, what happened. And John had come ashore in the tender and there was France in the back in the distance. I could just see France. It was a strange moment. It wasn't euphoric. You know, it wasn't like the sort of thing I'd imagined in my dreams of, you know, embracing the, whoever I had the biggest crush on at the time and, you know, music playing <laughs> in my head. It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> it just felt like something had ended. Was that sad? No, it wasn't sad. No, I wouldn't say it was sad. And But also remember, you're, I'm, I'm very conscious. I know what's going on, but, but I haven't got full sort of cognitive capacity I'm, I'm not necessarily processing emotions in the way that you normally would because you're sort of dumbed down on some level and so i yeah it's just been sort of quite calm yeah, it wasn't euphoric it, it wasn't the thing that i'd imagined it to be but then the sort of the trauma starts to fade quickly actually because you know saw my mum and little flossy the dog and there's dad mm. and there's john looking me in the eye saying you did it tfl you did it the good emotions start piling on the on the yeah. bad ones and, and, and dominating them you know in the end you actually swam 32 miles because of the tides in 11 hours and 54 minutes so what did you do that evening so uh the uh, families and the families from the club and things they all drove back to london and, and me john bullet and john calloway who was the number two coach went back to uh john had one of those static caravans which he used as a base from which to sort of do training and things near dover harbour so we went back there the three of us and john sort of just made up a pillow in this in this little caravan and 
took me under a blanket and gave me a pen knife and <laughs> said, well done. Um, and I put my head on the pillow and, and fell asleep. Must have been about sort of seven o'clock on, on, on the sixth, maybe eight o'clock. Uh, but I hadn't slept for, since I got up for school the previous day. <laughs> uh, Crazy. So I got up, yeah, for, yeah for full on sort of 48 hours almost of, of no sleep and swimming 32 miles. Remarkable what your body can do under, under those conditions. Yeah, yeah. So take me to the book itself then. Why did it take so long to write? I, I said earlier, sort of almost 25 years. And what was it that changed your mind? There was a couple of bits to that. The first thing is that I suppose in my inside, I always knew that there was a good story there, you know, a really good story of a, an interesting sort of adventure from when I was a kid. But I was also left by John with this notion that you don't really talk about stuff. You know, you don't, he had a phrase, don't be a big head, T-Fowl. He was really worried that, that the things that I was doing and that the nature of my character at that age, you know, I was slightly susceptible to being a bit of a, a cocky kid, you know, and he didn't want that for me because he, he recognized that that wouldn't do my human relationships any good and wouldn't make me very likable. And so he was always saying, don't be a big head, T-Fowl. You mustn't be a big head. And so I was kind of left with that in the, in the years that followed. So I never really spoke about it. And of course, you know, I didn't hide it from anybody. You know, I'm perfectly happy to sort of tell people about it once in a while if they, are, if they asked or if became aware of it. But I didn't really talk about it. And I was left with the sense that one doesn't. You know, it's just not what we do. And so it took a, a, a while, at the, even at the point where it was a, an option to, to write it all down, I had to sort of check with myself that it was okay to do so. And it was actually Helen, my wife, who said, of course it's okay to do that. You know, you have to remember that in that story, other people might find that useful. So I sort of held on to her. I remember when she said it, oh, well, okay, so it's all right. I'm not a big head. If I, if I write this down, it's because other people could. So that's what I told myself, you know, tell ourselves stories. And that was, that was um, how I sort of justified it. And then, of course, there was the, well, I'm, I'm not an author, or I wasn't. Uh, I've never written a, a story before, a memoir. So w- would I be good enough to do it at all? And, you know, when I, when I speak to schools about this now, one of the things I, re- I say to them is that you know, I had to re- remind the 40-year-old me of something that I learned when I was 10 and 11, which is have a go. Because you'd never know. <laughs> you, you, you don't know where things will lead. And there's nothing to lose. So just have a go and, and give it your best. And that's always a bit of a leap into the unknown, isn't it? But actually, I found it a hugely enjoyable process. And, and Penguin said, we'd love you to write this book. And I said, all right. And I'd sent them a sort of a prologue and a little thumbnails of how, how all the chapters would unfold and things. One of the questions I asked was, who did the writing? <laughs> all the publishers. We, all, we went to about seven publishers, I think. And, uh, and they all liked it. And they kept asking. So we've got, we're dying to know who's the writer. And we who do you think wrote it? Mm. <laughs> so I was slightly offended. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't meant in, to be um, offensive. But And then, of course, I, f- I found that I quite enjoyed that process. And so I set about tapping it out on the, on the way to work every morning. You know, so I, I commute. It's about a 45-minute train ride. And I sort of did the maths. I thought, well, hang on. That's an hour and a half a day. It's five days a week. That's seven. That's six days out of five right there. I've got an extra day. What have I been doing all these years? You know, mm. so in, in, in sort of 40, 45-minute segments, I'll just... Um, take a little tiny lump out of it. it took me a few months the best part of a year to get the script the you know, manuscript together but yeah it was it became a very lovely sort of daily distraction really i used to look forward to getting on the train <laughs> to pick up the story where i left it i was going to say most authors i've spoken to have offices in their houses and specific little writing places but yours was was on this daily commute to waterloo did you have a specific seat on the train or was the did you get on in time where it was still sort of carriages were still empty and you could just sit down in the same place every day and just tap out what you needed to do? So this is a bit of a confessional, right? So I'm going to commit to the public record. This <laughs> so I, I did a trial. I upgraded my ticket to first class because I thought I need a table, right? Uh, yeah, well, quite No, it's true. It's true. It's like a guilt, you know, first class guilt, you know. I upgraded my ticket for a, for a week or a month or whatever to do this preface thing and to see if I could just have a power socket, always get a seat because it's got to work. I'm going to do it. It's got to work. Uh, and of course it did work. So then I ended up having to get someone to, to lend me a couple of grand to upgrade the ticket. <laughs> I've got to write this thing in a year. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's an extra £2,000 on the season ticket. How am I going to afford that? So Julie did, and of course that's the other thing. Once you've done it, you never want to go back, do you? But no, right. I, need, I needed a, I needed a seat, and I needed uh, I needed a power and a table. Otherwise, I could never have done it. After swimming the Channel, you and John discussed swimming the Irish Sea, the Thames, uh, a relay of the lakes, and even training for the Olympics. But then, five months after you completed the Channel, John Bullitt died. Where were you when you heard the news? Oh, um, I'd just walked in 
through our front door uh, in Beach Hill Road and I just saw my mum. And mum gave me one of those looks that only a mum can give you. You didn't need to say anything. And then I realised that he was dead. Um, to qualify that slightly, I knew he'd been very unwell because I'd been to visit him and, and effectively say my goodbyes in the days that preceded that moment. So, of course, it wasn't a surprise as such, but it was still an absolutely devastating moment. It was the first time in my life that I you know, encountered you know, genuine grief. You know, and I, Sadly, of course, most of us have to deal with that at some point in our lives more than once. But uh, So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's still difficult to talk about 30 years later, but that was just an enormous wrench for, for all of us, not just me, my sister, all the other kids in the clubs, the families who'd supported that club and supported John for for 21 years that that club had been in existence. He was a huge, huge influence on so many people. You said earlier on in this interview that it was a tribute, the book was a tribute. I've always felt it's a a love letter to childhood and to community, but mainly to John. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some stuff that's not in the book. I was still having dreams about John. And some listeners will know this one where someone you've lost or whatever, and you have a dream and you imagine they're still alive, but you know you're dreaming and it's all a bit kind of traumatic. I was still having dreams about John um, wishing that he was still here, you know, well into my thirties. One of the things I'm obviously pleased about is that um, that story really sets out what John did for, for me and for so many others uh, around this community that we grew up in, this community that he built. So it's a lasting tribute to John, and because he deserves it, <laughs> he absolutely deserves it. He changed our lives. There's no other way of putting it. Yeah. Was it cathartic reminiscing about him when you were writing it? Yeah, it was. I said I wrote it on the train. The only bit that I didn't write on the train, I knew I had to take a day off work for and do it somewhere different because it's not a good look sobbing into your laptop on the, <laughs> on the morning train to work. Uh, so when I was writing about his passing and how that felt, I had to go and um, find a sort of cafe garden somewhere slightly out of the way. And I remember the waiter coming up to me asking if I wanted another coffee. And he looked at me and said, are you all right? Oh, can I get it? It's, it's all right. I'm, I'm just finishing a book. It's just really sad. I said, I'm fine. Can I have a Coke? <laughs> <laughs> so, so crying over the keys you know re- recalling how this felt because it was uh it was cathartic and i haven't had any of those little dreams that i mentioned to you but john john sort of stayed in my life emotionally for, for many many he still is right but i do feel much much more ease with it now that uh that i've got to write it all down and, and sort of tell his story insofar as i could see it mm. what do you think he'd have made of it a <laughs> hey, great question I think it would have been bemused. If it was, if it had been a matter of permission, none would have been granted. There's absolutely no way <laughs> that John would have, would have willingly signed up for his his uh, his contribution being logged in this way because he would he just would have refused the compliment and he didn't like the limelight. He didn't have a, a big ego. He didn't he didn't crave recognition and things like that. Like, not from the way I understood him to be anyway. And he didn't like to boast. So from that point of view alone, I think he would have raised an eyebrow. I think secretly he would have been really pleased that that those dozy parents and dozy teachers understood what it took to train a channel swimmer. And he all, would also probably wave a flag for the amazing things that young people are capable of doing mm. if you give them enough time, love, uh, and knowledge, right? Yeah. That's the bit he would have celebrated. What was the feeling like to have the first copy in your hands? It was good. It was good. It's um, it, it came in a crazy colour scheme of a sort of 80s orange uh, and slightly sort of retro 80s writing across the top. It reminded me slightly of one of those sort of Haynes instruction manuals. Yeah. <laughs> that's what publishers do. I was like, wow, that's striking. So I loved it. I, you know, I've still got a couple of copies on the in the uh, in the room from where I'm talking to you now, just up on a little plinth, you know. And, and I do like looking at it because John's on the cover as well. And his, it's a beautiful, his cover, it's a beautiful cover photo, actually, white, isn't it? Bobble hat. Yeah, Claire, Mother Duck took that. Did yeah, she? She was on the support boat. Yeah, she was there. Yeah, and uh, and it just there's something about the photograph that that sort of defines the book helpfully because you know, John's sort of looking over me. You can't see his face. You can't read his expression. But there's me bobbing around in the sea, chewing down a, a chocolate digestive, and he's sort of watching over me, holding the holding the soup that I've that I'm just about to drink, um, which is about to pass into the channel to keep me going. Uh, it's a decent metaphor, isn't it? It's, it? It just kind of works. So, yeah, I, it was a lovely thing to hold it. And I'd be lying if I said I don't once in a while just sort of pick it up and have a little flick through late at night, maybe with a glass of wine in my hand and just, you know, remind myself of some of the things that are in there because uh, it was an absolute joy to write it. When you think back to everything that's happened since you arrived at Elton Swimming Pool, age seven years old, were those 11 hours and 54 minutes worth it? every stroke of the way that swim has helped me and my my life 
in so many more ways than, than I have time to explain to you. I think it paved the way for a, for a career in the army through my twenties. And that's probably a difficult for people thing for people to get hold of. How do you draw a line between open water swimming and being an infantry soldier? But for me, it's quite direct. <laughs> it's about doing things in teams. It's about putting yourself in, uh, in challenging environments and adventure and all that kind of stuff. Open another world for me. I learned young that if you really want to do something, you just got to imagine it. And over time it becomes possible because if you, if you work hard and I tell the youngsters this now, you know, if you understand what you're trying to do uh, and you've got, you've got the love of others, you've got people around you, genuinely anything is possible. And, and, and that's a really sort of hopeful message actually, because I was not, I was just not some specimen child. You know, I wasn't particularly good at anything. Gen- I really wasn't. No one believes that when I say it, but I wasn't. And it just proves what's possible for a distinctly average child, provided you've got other people around you. Yeah. I, I, still- I will always be indebted to John. I bet. Do you still swim today? I do, yeah, well. Here's it. So my kids are three and five, and many parents would agree that it's quite difficult <laughs> to really find time to do anything that, that you might do on your own, right? I.e. Yeah. long distance swimming. But you know, just getting to an age now where all they want to do is go swimming. I'm hoping that's because that's just because you know, they like it and I'm, I'm sort of make it available to them. And so we're spending a lot more time you know, hunting down little lakes and little rivers and you know trying to jump in the sea as often as we can and things like that, which is terrific fun. If I'm on it, I don't get the time to train or set targets and, you know, plan a big swim or anything like that. But maybe that will come, you know. I, I really hope for the girls, the two daughters, that it's something that, that we can sort of share, you know, as they grow older. Having said that, I, all I really want for them is to have the love of being around the water that I had, being in it, that I had. You know, I, I don't hold any more ambitions for them than, than they would for themselves. So, um, so yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, fingers crossed it comes. It's an incredible story. Tom Gregory, thank you very much indeed for sharing it. I hope it was significantly less painful than that swim. (laughs) Simon, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Tom's book, A Boy in the Water, is available in bookshops and online. It is a beautifully crafted 180 pages of a -a once-in-a-lifetime adventure and a real love story. Uh, John Bullitt, I'm sure, would be very proud of you. That's it for episode nine of Sports Pages. Don't forget to listen back to last week's show with Bill Barrich and his journey to a small Californian racetrack that saved his life and became a sporting classic into the bargain. That's laughing in the hills. Thanks again to Tom. I'll be back next Tuesday with another author. I will see you in seven days' time. 